Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. On today's episode, I'm joined by Barunda Prince. Throughout her career, Barunda Prince has often found herself as the only or the first. It was hard. It was really hard. And it was hard not to have a mentor or somebody that looked like me that I could go to and ask questions of. The closest mentors I had were Black men. They could help, but I'm at that point of intersectionality where it's both gender and race. And so there were some unique challenges because of that. I often felt very, very alone. Starting at MIT, Barunda was the only Black woman studying engineering. After graduating, she became the first Black female engineer in Procter & Gamble's beauty and care division, where she would lead a team of engineers to create Pert Plus, the first ever product combining shampoo and conditioner. Upon getting her MBA from Harvard, Barunda again found herself as the first Black female at the consulting firm Bain & Company, and eventually the only Democrat on her district's school board, where they went from the lowest quartile to number one over the course of four years. Today, Barunda is the COO at the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, a center created to support Black entrepreneurs in overcoming the unique barriers they face in building thriving businesses. Throughout this episode, Barunda shares insights and lessons from her remarkable career, including how to build trust on a team, how to find common ground to drive big change, mindset tips to navigate being an only, taking on new challenges or correcting mistakes, and inviting others to help you on your career journey. This is such an incredible conversation with a truly remarkable woman. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Barunda. Thank you so much, Margaret. It is so good to have you here. And, you know, this is one of those moments where I kind of pinch myself a little bit when I kind of opportunistically get to meet somebody. And I can't believe I'm getting to hear their story. And you were one of those. So I not <laughs> fangirling over here. I got to <laughs> rein it in. <laughs> I love it. I love the energy and the enthusiasm. And I'm honored and humbled by it as well. I'm so looking forward to it because I think what's so intriguing to me is that there is such a dynamic career that you've had and you have dabbled in so many different areas. And so I'm very excited to understand this path that you've been on and how all these pieces that seemingly, you know, just looking at your profile almost look random, but they, you know, they're really not. So <laughs> they're at least asynchronous at best. I mean, so <laughs> it is not linear. <laughs> so, you know, I think what's really amazing right now is that you are leading the Russell Center here in Atlanta. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I kind of want to paint the picture for everyone of like what you're doing today before I take us back and let everyone know where it started. So will you tell us about what you're doing currently in your career? Absolutely, with joy. So the Russell Center is located in Southwest Atlanta. And we are focused exclusively on supporting Black entrepreneurs to success. And Margaret, a little bit about the story of why we're focused exclusively on Black entrepreneurs. Um, one is we're located in Southwest Atlanta, Castleberry Hill, where the largest concentration of Black entrepreneurs are. Two, the name Russell comes from the Russell family and their legacy of their father, 70 years being in business, and he's a 
business tycoon and titan probably even before the you know the name was truly coined and he started as a plasterer went from a plasterer to if you fast forward to today has i call them kind of like four pillars that he has he has construction and if you look at the skyline of Atlanta, the Georgia Power Building, he was instrumental in building that Atlanta Hartsville International Airport. If you go to D.C., Smithsonian, he was instrumental in building that. So construction, he also brought professional sports to Atlanta. He was one of the original owners of the Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Flames way back when we had them here in Atlanta. He has concessions. So if you go to Hartsville International Airport, you go to Concourse B, the concessions there are owned by the Russell family. And then the other pillar is real estate. Mm -hmm. So he owns, if you can envision, those of you who are in Atlanta, if you can envision all the way from Mercedes-Benz Stadium, a mile kind of in either direction, he really owns or his family owns all of that property. And so that's inclusive to going to the AUC campus where Spelman, Morehouse, Morris Brown, Clark Atlanta are, all the way to where Georgia State is, the other way, and then up towards Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So all that to say that they have lived and breathed the life of entrepreneurship and they understand what that can do for personal and family wealth generation. And so they want it as a homage and legacy to their father to make that happen for other entrepreneurs. So, Margaret, if you can imagine walking into the building of the Russell Center, where Mr. Russell built this building 70 years ago, and you as an entrepreneur look around and say, wow, he started by plastering walls. Heck, I can do this too then. It is so inspiring and it's aspirational. And at the same time, it's relatable to your own life and to your own journey, because we oftentimes see people at their peak and the summit of their success, but we don't see all the, the humble beginnings and the stumblings and the failings along the way. And so this makes it real for people to say, if he can do it, if he can have that impact, not only in business, but the Atlanta community, then you can too. So I get to do that every day as COO here at the Wessel Center, which is phenomenal. Oh my goodness. Such amazing work. I mean, I just am so touched by that idea of creating a space that allows people to see themselves in it and also believe in the possibility of what they are capable of. And I'm so grateful whenever I encounter companies, organizations, individuals that are taking their success and opening up pathways so that others following can have the same success and more. I mean, I think that's really how we, how we bring about the change most of us want to see in this world. So I, I love that. Okay. So this is what, this is going to get fun here because, you know, <laughs> here you're running this incredible center. You're the COO, but you started as a chemical engineer. I did. I did. I did. Yes. <laughs> this is incredible. Okay. So you got your chemical engineering degree at MIT. Yes. I guess first and foremost, because again, it, you know, engineering is still very kind of lacking in diversity and women in particular, there's still not a lot of women. How did you even hone in on chemical engineering as what you chose to study? Yeah. So like most people, you know what you know and what you're exposed to. Sure. Fortunately, 
My parents were both educators. So my dad was a science teacher. My mom was an English teacher in the Atlanta public school system. And one of the things that they quickly realized and cultivated in me was that I, I had a natural, I will say, interest in an affinity for math and science. And so I was looking at, well, I really like math and science. So what do I do with that in terms of a career, in terms of major? And I was very fortunate because I had an uncle who was a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. And so he taught to me about engineering. And that was my first real exposure to engineering and what engineering meant and what you could do and the different disciplines of it. So once he told me about that, I started thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like the things that I'm interested in. I'm just curious about learning and how things work and making things work better and easier for people and then bringing math and science into that. And I've always, Margaret, unfortunately, (laughs) looked for the challenge. So (laughs) when I heard- What do you say, unfortunately? Because sometimes it's just nicer to to take the easy path. (laughs) Not always the hard path. But when I heard that there were many women or- frankly, Black people in engineering, that was like waving a red flag in front of a bull. Yes. Because it was like throwing down the gauntlet of, oh, what do you mean that there aren't? Why not? Oh, well, then we have to change this. Mm -hmm. So that even, that was another source of motivation for me to do something different, to make a difference, and to do it in an area where I can have impact and where, frankly, I had a love of doing it. So. I was very fortunate in terms of exposure, in terms of encouragement from my parents, the things that my parents did to make that possible, because my high school was all Black here in Atlanta, Washington High School is still here, literally down the street from where I'm working now. And so my parents, once they realized that, okay, she's interested in doing this, they did everything they could to support Mm -hmm. it. They helped me find summer programs that were math and science and engineering related. I even went to Georgia Tech when I was in high school because I had finished and completed all of the math and science that was at my high school. And my mom said, well, you can't spend your junior and senior year in high school and not have math and be an engineer. So let's go figure this out. So this was before there was dual enrollment. There was no such thing. I remember my mother having to actually go to our Georgia congressman to get permission to do this because there was no, as I said, there was no structured way that was not something that was done. And so she was creating paths and showing me the way by modeling, hey, if the path is not there, you create it. You make it happen. You don't let that stop you. Mm. So my, my junior, senior year in high school, I went to Georgia Tech. I credit Georgia Tech for actually getting me or allowing me to go to MIT because I had that foundational learning. And I probably would have stayed at Georgia Tech, but, you know, it's in Atlanta and I wanted to spread my wings and have a different experience. And frankly, you know, no shame to any of the yellow jackets out there, (laughs) but MIT certainly at that time, those many years ago, was a global powerhouse. And at that time, Georgia Tech was a regional one. And so it had more of the name recognition. Full disclosure, Georgia Tech is a powerhouse unto itself now. I'm actually on one of the boards for Georgia Tech. So I am a committed person to it in all kinds of ways. But all that to say, being an engineer 
it was really because of exposure. And then again, encouragement and then hard work because I had to do the hard work to make it happen. I had to do the hard work to add supplementary things to what I was already learning so that I could be a good candidate. But it was one of the best things I've ever done. Oh my gosh. That's so incredible. And it's so interesting as I'm listening to you talk about this kind of where it all began. It's so interesting, even that, that side of you that welcomes a challenge that, you know, wants to like, says like, there should be more representation. It's just so interesting of like where you are now. And it's almost like, it's so obvious, even (laughs) like kind of, it was like almost written in your heart then, you know, that like you are one of those people that is meant to be a change maker, somebody kind of to the message your mother gave you of like, if there isn't a path, you create it, you know, like, I think that's so neat and how incredible to have the support around you and parents that really were willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and come up with some creative solutions to enable you to fully tap into this potential that you had. That's so amazing. Okay. So then there's just so many, I, I, I'm smiling from ear to ear because I'm like, okay, well, I mean, it just, how does it get better? But it keeps getting better. So graduate college, yeah. you go to Procter & Gamble. Tell us about your work at Procter & Gamble because you, again, do some pretty incredible, like cutting edge things in your time yeah. at Procter & Gamble. It's so ironic because Margaret, literally this week, I was talking to my mom about this. She brought this up on her own. Mm-hmm. But so I, I went to Procter & Gamble after graduating from MIT, chemical engineer, Procter & Gamble is known as a place to develop good business people, good training. You can see Procter & Gamble people probably at every major corporation now in the world because the fundamentals are there. Yeah. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go, go to Procter & Gamble. And so when I joined Procter & Gamble, I joined what we call the beauty care division. It may still actually be called that. And in the beauty care division, it was more shampoos, conditioners, beauty care products along those lines. I was one of a handful of Black engineers, and I was the first Black female engineer in my group and in my division, which was, I'm sort of dating myself a little bit there. But there are certainly many challenges, but also just many opportunities from being the first or one of the few, that kind of thing. One of the opportunities was that I actually was able to develop a commercial process for Perk Plus, the first ever shampoo and conditioner in one. So before then, you know, everybody had their shampoo, then they had the conditioner, and you know, but then PNG realized that hey, time is of the essence. And if you can use one product and it'll be more cost effective and you still get the same results, people will love that. So I was charged with coming up with the actual process to scale it up, to go from pilot to how do we reproduce it on a commercial level so that it's consistently done and done economically. So you can imagine young Black female engineer of what, 22, 23 at that point. And given this mission, there were so many interesting and unique challenges as there are with any kind of scale up of a, of a new product. You're figuring it out, you're doing experiments. In addition to that, there were the challenges of leading a very homogenous group. My way of saying it was white men that I was leading and telling what to do. And that is something that was strange both for them and for me. And we had to figure it out. And so had just very different and interesting situations and dynamics. 
And this is when, when having the MIT brand really comes in handy because people never questioned my capability. They never questioned my credentials. And so that gave me some grace, I will say. That gave me opportunity and time to then prove that I could lead, prove that I could manage. And so the gratifying thing is despite the hiccups that we had at the beginning, and there were there were definitely some, and there were some people who were looking at me with a side eye and not quite sure, and they weren't really cheering me on. It was more like waiting for me to fail. But by the end of the process, Margaret, literally my team was 18. Literally, my team was like, we did this. And one of the most gratifying things is I had one of my early naysayers who I knew going in because A, they thought they should have had that role. And B, always a challenge. Oh yeah. I was I was younger than them. I was less experienced than them. They thought they all these for all these reasons. And they came to me, he came to me and he said, you know, Miranda, at the beginning. This was going to be doomed. I thought it was not going to work. I thought they made a mistake putting you in charge of this. I thought it was going to flop. We were never going to do it. And you know what? You proved me wrong. And I want to just let you know that I'm sorry that I wasn't, I was not really that person that was supportive of you in the beginning. And I am now. And that to me told me a lot of things. One, results matter. Yeah. Two, the way that you approach it matters. So the way that you approach a, a challenge with empathy, with understanding, with clarity, I was not uh, shying away from what the challenge was going to be. And three, that if you bring people along with you in a way that allows them to use their talents and express who they are too, they appreciate that. So I learned from that, and it was challenging because, and here's the part when it came up with my mom, where she said, remember that guy at PNG that told you that you didn't belong there and you were essentially the affirmative action hire? And remember that guy, how he said that? And remember when you called me and you were crying in tears? And I cried a lot, but never in front of my team. <laughs> I cried a lot in the bathroom because fortunately... The women's bathroom was pretty empty. <laughs> so that was a good thing. Or my car on the way home or, or talking to my parents. I was, you know, it's crying. It was hard. It was really hard. And it was hard not to have a mentor or somebody that looked like me that I could go to and ask questions of. The closest mentors I had were Black men. They could help. But I'm at that point of intersectionality where it's both gender and race. And so there were some unique challenges because of that. And so I often felt very, very alone. And it helped to have my mom and my friends and other, I call it my posse, that as I was going through this, I could bounce ideas off in a safe way. I could ask them, hey, am I overreacting that someone said this or did that? So it gave me balance. It gave me brainstorming opportunities for how do I approach this? How do I deal with it? And it gave me the support and the confidence that though I feel like I'm alone day to day, maybe, you know, when I'm in there, I know I'm not. I know I have a whole lot of people beside me and behind me, pushing me forward and pushing me up and who who believe in me. And that is 
so empowering. Mm. And to this day, I carry that with me wherever I go, that there is not a room that I don't belong in. There is not an experience that I can't or a challenge that I can't somehow address. I can come up with a plan for, for everything. And I have now the evidence of that so that every time I experience a new challenge, I was like, Rhonda, this is nothing. Remember that time when you had this, or this is nothing. When you were at MIT, there were 10% Black folks there and probably about 15 or 20% women. And you have professors that tell you, you don't belong. So you, you've been through all of that. So obviously, whatever this is, you figure it out. You figure it out. Yeah, gosh, there were so many things that you hit on that are just incredible. I think the wisdom at such a young age too. And I I mean, I'm just, I'm so blown away by it because some of these things that either you intuitively understood or learned are so valuable and things that sometimes take a lot longer to understand. And I mean, I just, I love, you know, how you found people to support you and kind of identify it's like there were you know black male mentors that could help but there were missing parts of that support and so seeking that in you know in your mother and in your close friends and people to give yourself what you needed to navigate a very demanding very challenging very you know daunting process at times and I I think that is so great and I love how you put things in perspective for yourself of kind of like reminding yourself of like, you've been through this. There is evidence that has shown that you are capable of navigating this, even at a, again, very early in your career because of your experience at MIT. So I just, these habits, these behaviors, it's so fascinating to hear you describe them because it just is amazing. I'm curious from a leadership perspective, Mm -hmm. how did you handle knowing to lead? Because I think when you're talking about kind of bringing people along with you and leading empathetically, I mean, again, these are very advanced leadership skills. And so I'm curious where some of that came from that allowed you to kind of tap into that again, as a first time people leader. One of the things that I appreciate about who I am as a person is that I am I am genuinely interested in people. I am genuinely interested in knowing their story, knowing their dreams and hopes and and challenges. So I take time to to understand that as best that I can. And by really opening myself up to understanding people and, and people understanding me, there's that mutual authenticity and vulnerability that I think allows there to be place and space for people to have conversations The other thing I will say is that it was by necessity. Sure. (laughs) Because it was was like, hey, you better, you got to fail or fly. Uh, You better figure this out quick. It's it's like sink or swim. So by necessity, I knew I had to, I had to figure this out. There was, there was no other option. And I had a lot of practice and experience, even in my twenties. And part of that is because as a black woman or as, as a person of color, you're always figuring out the nuances. You're always listening and looking for the signs. There's always this different languages and norms that you have to be familiar with at any point in time. So that skill is transferable. So yes, as a young Black girl in Atlanta or in Georgia, I had to be aware of 
cues and my surroundings and meetings and nuances in a way that then helped me in other situations where I could rely on those things and say, okay, this is what this is meaning. This is what this body language is saying. This is that. And I had empathy for people because I know how it feels to be the only person or to be in a, in a very uncomfortable or unfamiliar situation. But I know how that feels. So I have empathy for people who are in that situation. So back to the, the question about, you know, P&G and the, the white men who were working for me, I know that they felt uncomfortable because they were unfamiliar. And so I get that. So being able to either, I will say, empathize with that and sometimes put that into language in a way that is more about curiosity and contribution than judgment and detraction. So I'm always asking questions about how can I help you, asking questions about how is this affecting your ability to do your job or mm. to get what you need and putting in that framework of we all want the same thing. And that is one thing that I kept coming back. And I still do that today. Identify what the shared goal and objective is and then keep bringing it back to that. I don't care if it's PNG or if it's I was on my local school board and I, well, I was the only Democrat on a school board of nine. <laughs> so it's eight Republicans. I also was one of two Black people. So the way that I navigated that was always bringing it back to what our shared goal and objective is. Because if you can focus on that, it can dampen all the noise about and the distraction about the differences. Let's focus and build on what we both want or what we all want. At PNG, we all wanted that pilot to be commercially successful. At Roman Haas, where I worked, we all wanted the business to maybe triple or, or double in size. So what is that shared goal? So that even when there's disagreement, we come back to that to say, okay, well, we've agreed on this. How does doing it that way or this way or looking at it this way or this way affect that common shared goal? So not focusing at all on the differences and focusing on what do we all want? Because when it comes down to a Margaret, we all want the same things. We really, really do. And so let's say, okay, let's acknowledge that and let's work together to make that happen. Yeah. Gosh, I, I just, I have chills listening to it because I think that desire to find the common ground to kind of, you know, to like look past where we're different and look where we're, where we're similar, where we share interests. And I think that just goes such a long way and, and helping people connect because again, as human beings, like we are so much more than alike than we are different. And so, but we are so easily pulled by the labels that we kind of give ourselves and society gives us. And so I think again, like you understanding that at such a young age is just so incredible. And there's a lot more literature around it now, right? I think one of my favorite <laughs> recent books is like Adam Grant wrote a whole book about this, right? Called Think Again. And it was this yeah. whole idea of how do you find it? So, so much is making sense about how you've really kind of been on this forefront because there's just some things that are habits that you have had that have served you very well that were in so many ways ahead of their time. And so you mentioned 
Roman Haas. And I, I want to kind of, there's a few steps between where we are at P&G <laughs> and where you are in your consulting work there, but you, you make the decision to go get your MBA at Harvard. Will you tell us about, you know, okay, you see the successful launch per plus this you know, innovative product. What leads you to want to go and get your MBA? And then ultimately, how did you decide to pursue that at Harvard? Well, what led me there is my time at P&G and even my summer roles and positions that I had as an engineer, I quickly saw that the impact and influence was on the business side as opposed to on the R&D side. And I was in, in R&D. And at P&G, R&D has a critical, critical role. Innovation is, is absolutely respected and desired and has a place of honor. At the same time, the business strategy drove the R&D mm-hmm. and drove the marketing and, and what was happening in terms of profitability and so on. So I saw that. And the other part of things is, my, quite frankly, I realized that I'm quite a people person. I didn't want to be in my lab or necessarily be in the plant. I want to be around people. I get energy from engaging with and interacting with people. I feed off of their energy. And so I I realized that about myself. And I said, wow, how can I take the foundation that I've gotten from engineering, which quite frankly, I think is about problem solving. So you can take that and apply that to any industry. And in fact, at my class at MIT, only about maybe a fourth of my class is still an engineer or stayed in engineering. Most of my class went into law, medicine, or business. Wow. And again, it's because it teaches you problem solving. And that's something that you, that's a skill set you need no matter what. So I decided that I really wanted to go into business. And it took me a long time, Margaret, to realize that I've been impacted by business all my life. I was literally just thinking about this maybe like last year. I'm like, oh my God, my family were entrepreneurs. I never saw them that way because even in this conversation, what did I tell you about my parents? Right, I said teachers. I said they were teachers. Yes. I totally didn't tell you that my dad owned an electronics business called Satellite TV. It was on the old Bankhead Highway, but I didn't see him as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I saw him as a teacher. And then I was thinking my grandmother had what um, they called a cafe. My family's from small towns in Georgia, Lumpkin, Georgia. She had a cafe where she served food and they played music. So it was kind of like a speakeasy. So she was an entrepreneur. So I have all of these experiences in my own family and life who were entrepreneurs and I never embraced it or saw it that way. So it was almost natural for me to think about, yeah, I'll go to, go to business school to, to learn these skills and the skill set. But I decided on Harvard because I had the quantitative background. No one was going to question whether or not I could do computations, I could do analyses, I could be objective in that way. If they were to question anything, it was going to be, can engineers speak? Can engineers work in groups and collaborate? Can engineers have a compelling written or verbal case made on something. And so I realized that Harvard with the case method is all about verbal expression, verbal persuasion. It's all about collaborating. It's all about being able to take different perspectives. So 
I would have the best of kind of both worlds. I would be able to say, yeah, obviously I can, I can speak intelligently and, and non-engineer speak, and I can do the engineering at the same time. So going to Harvard was a fairly easy decision for you. I'll let you in on a little secret though. So I was accepted to Wharton and I thought I wanted to go to Wharton for some personal reasons. My then boyfriend who went to MIT was going to Wharton because he had a full scholarship there and I had friends who were going to Wharton. I was like, yeah, this will be great. I'll go to Wharton. I went to Wharton for like about a week. I actually went to class and went there for a week and then decided, oh no, I don't want to go here. I'm going to go to Harvard. I never told Harvard no. So Mm. I showed up to Harvard a week late to class. And yeah, people were like, how could you possibly do that? And I was like, I didn't think it was that bold a move, but in hindsight, maybe (laughs) it was. But I went to Wharton and the first week I was there, I realized that we were using all Harvard cases. Mm. And I realized that many of the people who were there either were there because they wanted the financial structure, they needed the quantitative piece of things that I didn't need, or because frankly, they didn't get into MIT. And so I was like, why am I going to a place where everybody wants to, I can be at Harvard. And I, I went there and very few people know that. People at Harvard don't know that. <laughs> they know that I showed up late. They don't know why that I showed up late because I was at Wharton. So. <laughs> but it's you know, so long ago, I'm sure they'll forgive me now. <laughs> The, you know, what's, there's there's a couple of things that stand out that I just want to like call out for anyone that's listening that I think is so important. And the, the like the first thing is there's always a move you can make. And so I think what I what's really powerful is your willingness to trust your instincts. You know, like you had your reasons for going and you very quickly assessed like based off of the criteria that I was evaluating where I wanted to go on, this is not aligning with that criteria and making a move instead of, you know, convincing yourself of like, well, I made this decision and I need to see through it, like all the wrong reasons to stay in something. And so I think that is really applaudable of like tuning into your intuition in a lot of ways is what it probably was. And then the second part of that is, I think anyone listening to, it's like some of us, and I, I'll put myself in this category of like, it takes us a little longer to know ourselves, to understand, you know, the strengths, the skills, the experience that we have, and then allowing that to inform what it is that we want next and actually thinking critically about what we want next. And so I see you doing that in this process of why you wanted to explore where you wanted to go to school. You had clarity on what you already had credibility in and where you wanted to enrich your background to give yourself the best opportunities going forward. And so I just want to call that out because I think it just in very simple terms, it's knowing yourself, understanding all that you already are, knowing where you want to go and what's best going to help you. And I think that that's you know, you can either do that early on in your career or you can just start now. Like there is no right time, but like that is a very valuable way of letting you kind of find environments that are best aligned with who you want to be and who you are. When you say it, Margaret, it sounds so planned and so like, (laughs) I mean, it it just, I was like, yeah, my God, that sounds amazing. It's 
it, let me tell you, in the moment, it felt anything but. You know, it felt sure. Like, what are you doing? Oh my God, I can't believe you did it. What happens if you go, you show up at Harvard, like, and they say, I'm sorry, you weren't here. So we gave away your spot. Or, right. but yes, but at the same time, I think it is. I have learned and I and I still feel and I tell people all the time, I tell my kids this all the time. There are a few things that are written in stone that you can't change. Hmm. And that gives you a, a sense of freedom because it says that, okay, I can try this, I can take this leap. And if it doesn't work, okay, I can change it. I can do something about it. I am not stuck here. I can do something. It may be hard. I mean, you may have to, it may take some time. In that case, this that example wasn't hard. It didn't take that much time, but you can do something about it. And I I also, you know, help students who are looking at college careers and, and you know, where they want to go to school. And there is this anxiety about I might pick the wrong school or I might not get in. And I tell them all the time, take that pressure off of yourself because if you go to a school. And it is not right for you. You don't thrive. It's not what you expected. It's okay. I said, that's what transfers are all about. Right. Leave. You're not stuck. And and it's okay. And it's no no shame or no blame. It's that you got more information. You got better information that you didn't have before. And so based on the information that you had at the time, it was a good decision. You got more information, so you changed the decision. It's okay. That is what life is about, is making the best decision at that point in time with the best information you have, and then adjusting and changing when you get better information or you get different information. And so don't waste time worrying about those things that you can't control or change, but also don't waste time thinking, I'm going to be stuck once I decide this, I'm I, this is what I've got to do. Like, it, it's okay. It's a freeing thing. And it, mm-hmm. it, it really then allows you to focus on those important things instead of those things that are really, I call them kind of like energy vampires. They're yes. sucking up the energy in a negative way, yes. as opposed to allowing you to use that energy in a very positive way. Oh my God. Well, I just, I I love that. You, you say it so, so beautifully of make the best decision with the information that you have, and there's always a move you can make. And it is, it's so unbelievably freeing. And that's been one of the biggest things I think through this process of this podcast that I've been learning from women like you is like, that's so true. And and there's evidence of that in your stories, every single one of your stories. And that's a very common theme. So I thank you for sharing that. And this move launches what will become a 13 year consulting career. So you know, kind of transitioned us now, graduating out, going, you've initially go to Bain and Co. As the first black female. Yet again. Consultant. Yes. It's a, it's a thing, right? Like yes, that's, that's yes. why I said, I seem to seem to gravitate to new and different and unique experiences. They seem to attract me or I attract them. But yes, I was in my class of uh, new hires at Bain and Company. I was the first Black female consultant. They hired the first Black male consultant the same year, also from HBS. And then there were three associate consultants of color. So at the time, Bain was 
headquartered in Boston, only had one location, and you, you fast forward now, and it is it is known worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it was a again, it was a challenge because frankly, it was a new experience for them, and it was a new experience for me and for us. And finding again, and this is something that I will say: wherever you are, whatever you do, find people who can mentor you or, or be advocates more so than mentor, but actively promote and support you. And it was it was challenging at that time to do so at Bain. And part of the reason why was, you know, not only the unfamiliarity of being the first, but Bain was going through its own internal changes and difficulty. At the time, I did not know that because it was mostly at the partner level that that knowledge was there, but I felt that impact. And I was I was there and I learned so had so many great experiences being able to see and support CEOs of Fortune 500, Fortune 100 corporations just gives you a, a totally different perspective on business. And when you see how successful CEOs and successful corporations, kind of the, the commonalities and the traits of those people, one of the things, and it's not that they all have the same leadership style, but they lean into whatever their leadership, leadership style is. They're not so concerned about what they do wrong. They embrace what they do right. And they lean into that and they focus on their strengths. And then they find people to complement that, that maybe those gaps or areas that they have. So they don't worry about that they can't do everything well. They just do what they do well. And then they shore up those other areas. And I see that across the board. And so at Bain, I was there for about two years and then left to go to Roman Haas, which actually is a now with Dow Chemical. So Roman Haas was a chemical company. This came into play with my engineering background. So I was able to marry both my engineering and my business. And it gave me, once again, credibility. So I could talk to the engineers. Mm -hmm. I could talk to the business folks. And I could be that bridge. So that common language was being spoken, I could understand and foresee and anticipate what some of the challenges might be on the engineering side, but I also could understand what the strategic value and purpose might be on the business side. And so this is when I started really, I think, coming into my own, where I was bringing all of my interests and curiosity and talents and experience all together, and I could see for the first time, like the impact of being able to have all of that, the leadership piece, frankly, being a role model for other Black engineers, other female engineers, understanding how the business piece and the the engineering and the R&D and how all of those things really connect to each other and really reinforce each other. And so my career there was roughly 15 years. Absolutely. Loved it, learned a lot. I won't say it's ever been easy, but again, I don't seem to like easy. I seem to, I seem to like hard. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in some ways, like, thank goodness for that, because, you know, I think each one of us are kind of gifted with our own superpowers and skills. And so, you know, there, we need people like you who are undaunted or kind of in some ways motivated by the challenge. 
And then, you know, so that there's, there's, you know, not everyone is going to have that as a superpower. So thank goodness there are those of you who like, that is fuel. That is something that like that environment does not intimidate you. It, it motivates you. You mentioned something I wanted to ask you about really quick because it's very, it's so important. I think, especially for any minority, for women, like it's just uh, having, you know, an advocate. I know Mm -hmm. some people refer to them as sponsors, that person that is actively championing for you on your behalf within an organization. They're in the rooms you can't be in. It sounds like you, you know, were able to, at some point surround yourself with these advocates. Was there any sort of strategy or, or things that you did to help, you know, foster those relationships? Yeah, I would say be open because you never know where your sponsor or your advocate might come from. Mm. I was quite surprised by some who stepped up and and wanted to be my sponsor. You know, some white men that I thought, oh, he's not going to want to because of X, Y, Z or this and that. And again, you have to be open and realize that everything you see is not the whole story. So understanding that is helpful. The other thing is, not only being open to others, but you being open as well. So being honest about what you want. If you want to be partner at a law firm or partner at a consulting firm, or if you want to be CMO, let that be known because that is telling people, here's my dream. I am sharing this. And I know that there's some steps in between. And what I'm asking for is your support and your help and ask them, And if there's specific things that you want from them, if it's introductions, if it's, hey, let's have lunch so I can bounce some ideas off of you. If it's understanding their path or whatever it is, give them an assignment. Going to someone and simply saying, hey, I want you to be my sponsor is like, "Uh, okay, (laughs) what do I do with that? But if you go and you say, you know what, I'm in this role right now and I would like to be by next year or or two years from now, I want to be doing this. Can you help me figure out those steps or those connections or those people? Or do you have some sense of what I need to do to make that happen? So just be more specific and intentional about the homework or the assignments that you give. And be open to the fact that your sponsors or advocates or your posse may change over time. So Mm -hmm. I have some people who have been my posse advocate sponsors since I was in my 20s or my teens. And then I have some people that recently became, you know, in the last five years as part of them. And I've had some people who became ones and then they stopped for one reason or another, just because of, you know, changes in in my own direction in life. But I think it's important to have people who know your North Star from the beginning and they know your journey and its completeness in terms of the holistic, so they understanding. And then there are those people can help you in that specific expertise or that specific situation. So you need all of those at the same time. I think that that's much more effective. It gives you a lot more flexibility. It gives you a lot more perspectives as well. And I try to get varied perspectives so that it's not all people that I knew from business school or all people that I work with or all people that who are friends. It's a smattering of kind of all those people. And it's people fundamentally that I trust that they ultimately, they're interested in me and my happiness above anything else. So they're not interested in what does this necessarily do for them. And they can tell me too, Rhonda, you're getting off your North Star because 
I know that what's really important to you is giving back to the community. I know that you, you've told me a million and one times that your experiences and your opportunities are not just for you alone. It is for those other people that you can share that with to help them with their journey. How does this role help you do that? Or how does it not? So people who can take what you've said, understand it, and then play that back to you at critical times where you might be doing something that's inconsistent with it, or you might be doing something or missing an opportunity that could be very consistent with it. I think that that's really, really helpful once again, so that you're getting the benefit of many other people's brains, their networks, their experiences, all of those, so that it allows you to be more likely to get to where you want to be and where you need to be. Oh, thank you for unpacking that. Cause it's just, yes. <laughs> yes. To all of that. I was sitting here emphatically nodding my head. Okay. So I think by now we know you're very ambitious. You love challenges. You are this incredibly <laughs> crazy. Right. <laughs> and then I think in some ways you do something that probably seems very surprising, which is you step away from paid work. Mm, I did for a long time. For a, I mean, for, <laughs> for, a, for a long, a long time. time. Okay. Cause I remember when we met and you told this to me, it just is one of those times. Huh? <laughs> and, and, and I see that. I want to talk about this because for so many reasons, but I think also it's like, we get the luxury of like where you are today, where you started and all the journey along the way. And I think for a lot of people listening, they might be on the brink of stepping away. They might be in the midst of having stepped away. And so I, I, you know, part of what I'm so, I want to hear more about this is that there's courage and strength in seeing somebody else who has done something that mm. seems counterintuitive and that, you know, kind of it all works out. So tell us about what kind of brings about this decision to step away from paid work and, mm -hmm. you know, and then to stay away for, for a long period for a of long time. time. So I'll start by just saying, I'm a big NPR fan okay. and Koki Roberts is, is a, I, if I'm going to fan out, she, she's one of those people. And I remember an interview she was doing and she said, I've learned that you can have it all. You just can't have it all at the same time. And I thought, wow, how, how profound and how true. And it also wraps around how life is. Your, your priorities change, your situation changes. Lots of things happen in life, both expected and unexpected. And so I found myself married with three children which my classmates were shocked. Not that I was married, but the three children part, because in college, I was adamant that I was going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And maybe I would have a child, but you know, here I am with three. And it was crazy because we were living in, in Pennsylvania. Our families are from the South. And, and so we really had no family support locally. We were trying to figure this out. And it was, it was overwhelming. I was traveling a lot for my job. My husband was traveling a lot for his job. Literally, we taught our kids geography by pointing on a map and said, daddy's going to be here in Chicago. Mommy's going to be here in Texas. And it got to the point where we were handing our children off literally in the airport. Mm -hmm. He would be flying back from his trip, his, his business trip 
and I would be going out and we would meet so that we could do the child swap and we would have a razor thin margin of what happens if his flight is late coming in or if my flight is late. All of those things, which were really high stressors. And we both had positions of leadership where we had organizations and, and folks that we were responsible for, in addition to obviously being responsible as parents. And it got to the point where I had to honestly take a look and say, you can't do all of this well at the same time. There is just no way. It's taken a toll on you. I never wanted my children to, you know, I won't say suffer, but but have to be sacrificed. In fact, I, I left Bain in part because I was told that I couldn't be partner and have children. So that was one of the reasons why I left. And I was grateful that they were honest and told me that because that way I didn't waste my time and didn't waste theirs. And so a great way to see the positive in that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's something good out of everything. I do believe that, but oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I believed it when they said it, because when I looked around, I was like, huh, you're right. There is no other model right here, right now. Passport now is totally different. But I decided that, you know, my husband and I, we sat down and we talked and both our careers were going really well. He was a Wharton grad, as I mentioned before, at MIT as well. And we thought about this and we were like, okay, do we want to hire a nanny to do this? How do we want to do this? But we said, no, we wanted to raise our own children. And an opportunity came up at, at Roman Haas where they were, I will say, right-sizing. And this is something that I have to take responsibility for because in my role at Roman Haas as mergers and acquisitions group, I was the one that was like, yeah, we're going to have to do this. We're too, we're, we're in that in-between spot, too little to be a, a superpower and too big to be, we're, we can't, we're going to have to move up or down. And that was part of the strategy. So I was able to decide to, to leave and fortunately had that financial means that, that we could do that. And I decided to be at home with my kids. The oldest, I think, was by that time in fifth grade. My youngest was maybe just going into first grade. But I learned from my back to my parents and my family, I learned that kids don't really need you when they're really young. They just need kind of safety and security and and to be in a affirming place. When they get older, like middle school and high school is when they need more of your attention because they're more independent. There's opportunities to make decisions that are are not always in the best interest, all of those things. They need a little bit more attention and guidance then. So I intentionally waited until then. And one of the best decisions I ever made, I got to enjoy and see and direct and be with my kids, but I also got to refocus my talents into school board. So I ran for public office twice successfully. As I mentioned earlier, I was one of nine school board members and was able to have impact there because of all of my corporate and consulting and all of that experience. I brought that to what I was doing in that role. And one of the things I'm most proud of is that our school district went from, in the state of Pennsylvania, we were roughly in the lower maybe portal within three years, three to four years, we went to number one. 
And this was out of close to 700 school districts in the state. And people say, how did you all do that? We focused on the shared objective as opposed to things that, you know, and it's especially since I was the lone Democrat, we yeah. focused on that. And we focused on what the challenges were. We were we were honest about those challenges. And one of those challenges is what I call the performance gap, but it's more commonly known as the achievement gap, with saying why do low socioeconomic students and students of color seem to be lagging when it comes to academic performance. We talked about all of the reasons why. Why? Don't have the early exposure. Parents are busy working. Don't have time to go to the parent-teacher conferences. So let's make that easier. We came up with solutions for addressing that. We had some very courageous leadership in our school district in terms of the superintendent, in terms of the principals that had courageous conversations with parents and teachers about what this means. And we realized that anything that we do to help the students where have been designated as kind of the achievement gaps helps all students. You know, good strategies aren't just for students that are underperforming. They're good strategies for everyone. So that, right. um, that was quite a unique and different experience. And I will say that I use a lot of those lessons that I learned in those eight years as being a school board member every single day about how do you bring diverse and sometimes divergent groups together mm. where it seems that you don't have the same objectives or same goals. It seems like if you come at this from a different angle, I was able to not only work with my Republican counterparts, and I only tell you that because in Pennsylvania, you have to be one or the other. You can't, you can't be like an independent and kind of and run for an office. But I didn't focus on it. And I had Republicans supporting me. I could not have won in my district with just Democrats. It was impossibility. But I was able to talk about what we want is a great education for all kids, right? So that has that doesn't matter political party. Let's talk about. What really matters? How do we do that for all kids? And so those lessons I learn and I use every single day. When I go into a room and I see people who appear to be different or have different perspectives or have this, I use that ability because I learned how to fundraise. I had to do debates. I knocked on doors, all the things that you would think. I had to do campaign literature. I had to have a campaign team that I recruited. And it was diverse in terms of gender, in terms of race, and also in terms of party, intentionally. So all of those lessons I use every single day when I approach a new experience, when I meet new people, when I'm in a different situation. It's always about listening first and understanding and then playing back and then really repeating, but also reinforcing what it is that we agree on, what it is that we both want and why that's important. And that was phenomenal. That was phenomenal for my kids. They got to see civic duty in action and live that. And they helped me with campaigning. And my slogan was, well, with a name like Miranda, I didn't have to have anything else on my signs. 
know, <laughs> my campaign signs, but my slogan was because everyone deserves a great education. Mm-hmm. And I had everything from shirts and banners and I had folks in 5Ks, 10Ks running with those shirts on. And it was really, truly a grassroots effort. And I could go from that to re-entering and re-engaging with my entrepreneurial ventures, but also with my corporate. So again, life takes different turns. And sometimes it's like, the rapids. <laughs> On the rapids, you can try to fight it <laughs> or you can just go with it and see where it takes you. Yeah. And you've got to discern which one. And I found that more often than not, there's a reason why the rapids happen and they're trying to get me to a place that I need to be. Mm-hmm. And if I can be open and if I can look for where those opportunities come from and leverage it, it tends to work out. It doesn't always make sense. And people look at it and go, well, wow, how did you go from this to this to school board and now this? And like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, it makes perfectly good sense for me. I love that you just said that because, you know, it's so interesting. Again, I think the power of reflecting on our life and our careers is so valuable because we can kind of see like, right, the, the dots are so easily connected. But what I hear and what I've seen in other conversations like this is that the intentionality with each choice. I think that is, that's what people don't see when they look at the bullets on a resume or they look at the LinkedIn profile. What they don't have is that intentionality of why you're doing what you're doing, what is most important to you at this stage of life, Mm-hmm. And how is that informing what you're doing? You know, how are you, how is that informing your next step? And so to me, when I get to meet somebody like you and it makes logical sense, it makes total sense because the one consistent thing is that you are using kind of your internal compass of what's important, who you are, where your strengths are, your experiences. And that is dictating the choice that you make next and not looking outside of the world saying, well, what should I do? And what would people think? And what's expected of me? That is not going to get you anywhere, but lost. <laughs> yeah. And then so, there's no one way. And I think oh, and yeah. I have the credit engineering for that yeah. to, for helping me understand through problems, you know, engineering problems that, wow, there are often many different solutions and the difference in the solutions and in terms of the appropriateness is about context It's about your own priorities. It's about understanding what your, maybe your your resources are. And those are the things that then allow you to say, out of this universe of solutions, here's the best one for me. And there's no right or wrong. It is, what is your way? It is, is, what is your way? What is, you know, and so... And that allows me to also say other people can do it totally different. We might end up at the same place and have a totally different path. And that's okay. We might end up in different places and that's okay too. We start at the same point and sometimes we won't end at the same point and it's all good. It's all fine. It's about making sure that your journey is meeting your needs but also providing what you think that journey should be. And I think my journey should be about helping other people. I think my journey should be about 
making things better and easier. I don't take pride in necessarily being the first or being the only. I don't want anybody else to have to to do that. I really don't. Like, so if I can take that anxiety, that stress, that challenge off of somebody else's shoulders, they can then soar higher, faster, better. They can repurpose that extra energy it takes to be the first or only to something else. And I see it with my own three adult children now. I love that I can actually counsel my children in a way that my parents couldn't because they didn't have the same kinds of experiences. They didn't have the the corporate experience. They didn't have the experience of being the first or the only. But I can talk to my kids about that in their own situations and, and problem solve with them and say, okay, this is going on. You should, have you thought about doing this? Well, what about that? I helped prepare my son who worked for McKinsey for his interview because I worked at Bain. And so I understood that. So it is so nice to be able to take my experiences Mm -hmm. and help them, but, you know, and also help others. And, And that's what I'm doing even here at the Russell Center. Part of the reason why I'm here is because most of these, there's nobody else. And we have, say, close to 200 people in our Russell Center community. Nobody else has been to MIT and Harvard. And so because of that, I can open up my MIT and Harvard network to them in a way that they would have accessibility to. Maybe nobody else has had an entrepreneurial venture in the same way that I've had, or maybe someone else has not had the operation experience at a PNG. So I can bring all of that to them to help them problem solve, brainstorm, be more successful, remove barriers to their success in a way that if I didn't have those experiences and if I weren't here, then I couldn't and they wouldn't have that access. So I'm grateful that I can do that because at the end of the day, are my experiences really for me? No, they're about amplifying the impact by sharing them with other people so they can then take them and build on them and whatever their respective journey is. And I give credit to all the people who believed in me, who supported me, who even when I didn't believe in myself, when I thought I was an imposter, like there were times I would tell people, I tell my mom, mom, they're going to say that they made a mistake and let me into my team. She's like, you think there's another Burundi Prince? I'm like, no, but I mean, just, you know, but it was just like, oh my God. And then I realized everybody was kind of like struggling. Like it didn't matter. It's like, oh, okay. I do belong here. And so that whole thing of reinforcing and supporting and giving credit and credence to people who along the way helped you, I want to do that that same thing. I want want to do that for other people because sometimes you just need somebody to stand in the gap for you. You're too tired to do it or you don't have the confidence to do it or any other number of reasons. You need someone to say, Margaret, I believe in you. I know you can do this. And I'm willing to not only say that, but I'm willing to help you in any way that I possibly can. And that sometimes is all you need just to keep pushing a little further 
a little longer. And sometimes you keep pushing, something's going to change and you just don't know what and when, but it's going to break and it's going to change and you're going to be better for it and you're going to learn a lot along the way. And hopefully have fun and laugh because I laugh all the time, every day. With my team, I laugh at our mistakes. I laugh at the absurdity of things. I just have to laugh. Laughter and learn something new. Those are the two yeah. things. I want to learn something new every day. It doesn't have to be transformational. It can be something really simple, like a shortcut. And I used to ask my kids when they were growing up, when they came home from school, I would say, teach me something new today. Teach me, instead of saying, what did you learn today? Yeah. Teach me something because I wanted to let them know and reinforce that you can learn at any age, you can teach at any age, and that what they do and what they learn is equally valuable. They can teach me, they can teach their mom. And so I wanted them to have the confidence. And so I would say, teach me something new today. And my gosh, they're still teaching me something new. <laughs> they don't teach me to this day new things. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that. Wow, I hadn't thought of that. And it's just, it's exciting. And it's it really reinforces people's value when you tell them they can teach you something just as much as you teach them something. And it does every single day. And I, I love that. Oh my gosh, I have little, so I'm totally going to use that. I think that's such a great shift in how you ask the question. I love that so much. Oh, and I love, I love all of what you're saying. And it pains me to wrap these conversations up every time because I would love to just go on for forever. I always ask at the end, you've shared so many pearls of wisdom, but if there's, you know, either advice that has served you very well throughout your career or something that you have learned along the way that you want those listening, like that one thing that no matter what you walk away knowing this, what would you pick to, to give them? I would say be who you are and be willing to know that who you are can and likely will change. And some of that is by circumstance, unexpected and expected, but that it, it can all be good. It'll be hard. Change can be hard and challenging and it's uncomfortable and it's messy and it's nonlinear and all those things. But my God, change can be just incredible. It can open up new possibilities, new opportunities. And so just kind of be who you are and let that be enough. Let that be enough being who you are because Eventually, being who you are, you will show up and you will be better at whatever you want to do. People will see you for who you are. People will value that. And it gives permission to people to be who they are as well. Yeah. Well, if you are. I'm going to use you as a quick example, because when I met you, you were wearing this beautiful, colorful dress and it immediately drew my eye. And I just felt this magnetic pull to you. And remember, we briefly talked about even just that expression of who you are in the clothes that you wear and like really allowing yourself to own that. So that, and and that it just has, has that effect of like, when you are, when you truly step into who you are, it really is amazing how it just we worry so much that it it will alienate people. And in fact, it actually really invites people to connect with us. So I just, 
Oh, I, I thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing just your incredible journey and for the work that you're doing and the the gifts that you're giving back in so many ways to kind of, again, better this world around us. I just, I've I truly uh, treasured this time. And so have I, Margaret. I mean, to be able to share this time with you, but share my story and for you to listen to it with such interest, that's a gift. That is a gift to me. And I, I just want to let you know that I truly, truly enjoyed this and I, I will cherish it. Thank you. This was such a great conversation. And I think the only thing that could possibly rival Barunda's unbelievable career is the warmth that she radiates as a human being. Having gotten to be with her in person and now doing this interview, she truly is a positive force that is driving meaningful change. And she makes anything better that she is around. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to connect with Barunda, reach out, let her know. You could always leave us a review on wherever you get your podcast fix. And I want to say a big thank you to Josh Reedford for the amazing editing that he always does on these podcasts. And last but most important, thank you to each and every one of you who tunes into these episodes to listen to these incredible stories and be part of this amazing community. Collectively, we will continue to allow ourselves to be better, to inspire one another. And until next week, keep rising.